trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there, and thank you so much for joining us today. This is a little get-together that I hold on a regular basis to share some uh, solid information, principle-based information that hopefully takes you far beyond the shouted bumper sticker slogans that seems to dominate a lot of uh, political discourse these days. In fact, uh, longtime listeners to this program will note and attest that this is a decidedly non-political show, even though we do talk about political issues from time to time. It's uh, never from the, the standpoint of rah-rah red team or rah-rah blue team, because it turns out more often than not, red team and blue team are just different, side, different sides of the same tyrannical coin, along with the fact that uh, it seems like everything that gets politicized becomes a power struggle at some level. Hey, I'm glad you're part of our audience, though. I've got some lovely show notes you can check out at thebrianheidshow.com. It's a great way to do further research on some of the different topics that come up. And I have great sponsors who make this possible on a daily basis, including MonticelloCollege.org, LifesavingFood.com, and the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, located in St. George, Utah. Got some exciting sponsors that are going to be joining us um, in the very near future, and I hope you'll be listening and and patronizing them. Look, I'm not telling you, hey, you need to drop everything you're doing and go buy something from these people right this second. But I'll tell you that uh, these are these are good people. They believe in the principles that that uh, really make life worth living, and I recommend them to you as businesses that you can trust, products and services that you can trust. If you don't need them right now, maybe drop them a line and just let them know that the message is reach, their message is reaching your ears. So let's begin with uh, one of the biggest favors you can do for your children, and that is to teach them to think clearly and independently. Now this is kind of a, this is, there's, there's a little bit of danger involved here because do I want my kids to really question everything that I say? And I know as a parent, it can be like, gosh, dang, my kid wants to argue with me on everything. But yeah, I would rather have a kid who who argues and who who stands up for his or her rights than one who just meekly bows their head. Yes, yes, whatever. I'll I'll just go along. Annie Holmquist uh, has has a terrific piece about teaching children to recognize propaganda. And what this comes down to is it's, it's teaching your kids to sort fact from fiction. She says, when the pandemic hit, school went online and learning seemed to be thrown to the wind. As the pandemic stretched on, many teachers were loath to return to the classroom because of apparent COVID fears. Parents began to question whether teachers were really concerned about or eager to foster their children's learning, especially as they could see the learning loss that was happening, or rather learning that the, 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 the learning, rather, wasn't happening at all. Now, such fears were groundless, according to Cecily Meyert-Cruz, head of the powerful United Teachers Los Angeles Union. Meyert-Cruz scoffed at the idea of learning loss in a recent interview with the LA, with Los Angeles magazine, claiming, quote, It's okay that our babies may not have learned all their times tables. They learned resilience. They learned survival. They learned critical thinking skills. 
They know the difference between a riot and a protest. They know the words insurrection and coup, end quote. Now, Annie Holmquist says, to the discerning reader, it's apparent that uh, Meyer Cruz could have stated the above much more succinctly by saying, our babies learned propaganda. And in fact, they have been learning that propaganda for many years. Unfortunately, we looked away, convincing ourselves that such propaganda was just in big districts like Los Angeles or New York or Chicago, not in our own local middle American neighborhoods. She says, for years, we kept our children in those schools, convincing ourselves they were safe, that their teachers and the curriculum they were studying were teaching them good things, that those good things would prepare them for, the, for living in a free world, able to embrace truth and recognize error immediately. Well, she says, given the accelerated rate of deception in society, it now seems clear that the schools indeed didn't prepare children to recognize propaganda. Instead, they were the ones that fed propaganda to, to children, hook, line, and sinker. Late author and historian Richard Weaver observed this phenomenon in a 1955 essay entitled Propaganda. It's tempting to say that the only final protection against propaganda is education, Weaver said, but he said the remark must be severely qualified because there is a type of education which makes people more rather than less gullible. He says most modern education induces people to accept too many assumptions. On these, the propagandist can play even more readily than on the supposed prejudices of the uneducated. It's the independent, reflective intelligence which critically rejects and accepts the ideas competing in the marketplace. Education to think rather than mere literacy should be the prime object of those seeking to combat propaganda. Isn't that a beautiful quote? Now, Annie Holmquist says, regardless of whether our children go to private, public, or even homeschool, they will inevitably be exposed to propaganda. So how do we educate our children and ourselves in the process to think and wield the sword against the enemy, this enemy? Well, she says a few ideas come to mind. First, she says, train yourself and your children to explore both sides of an argument. For example, if you think the election was stolen... Examine the arguments of those who agree with you, but look also at the sources claiming to debunk such alleged conspiracy theories. Likewise, she says, if you think the COVID vaccine is perfectly safe and can't understand why people won't take it, dig into some of the scientific studies and testimonies of those who have a wary view of it. Knowing what the opposition is saying will strengthen your own arguments and make it more difficult for people to accuse you or your children of just simply being narrow-minded. Second, she says, look for logical fallacies in the information coming out of the television, the classroom, and the Internet. The fallacy detective by Nathaniel and Hans Bludorn is a fun way to introduce children to this subject. Once these fallacies are learned and digested, she says, create a game by seeing how many fallacies your family can spot in a news report or a politician's speech. Finally, Annie Holmquist suggests expose children to the wisdom of the past. Just as those trained to detect counterfeit never accept fake money but only the real thing, so we must give only our children, we must only give our children good, high-quality reading material. Many of the books written today are filled with fluffy, politically correct drivel 
but often books written in the past are filled with messages promoting traditional values and solid character. Place these latter books in the hands of your children, and they'll soon sniff out and reject woke material. Modern education. Most modern education induces people to accept too many assumptions, Weaver said. Lanny Holmquist says, buck the trend and actively ensure your children reject the propagandistic assumptions they're taught at school and in society. Now, I want to take this just one step further, and I'd like to uh, to beat the drum for just a moment here about the value, first of all, of self-study. I had the chance uh, over this last weekend to, to visit with my biological dad, and uh, one of the things that, that I found extremely admirable about him is he has a true study in his home. He uh, worked within the university library system. I mean, he's, he's a very well-educated, very well-read individual. And so it was kind of neat to see, first of all, all the books uh, that he had around his home. But uh, when he showed me his study, I was like, you know what? This is such an improvement to, to the man cave, you know, with the, the air hockey table and the big screen TV and a bar and, you know, all the cool doodads, you know, of how to uh, entertain yourself in your leisure time. But that habit of self-study is essential to any people who want to be free. And I'm not just talking about you should be reading political philosophy every time you have a spare moment. That's important, too. But you need to be looking at, I mean, you need to be reading your scriptures. If you're a person of faith, you need to be in touch with, uh, with history. And yeah, you should expose yourself to, for instance, the great books of Western civilization. Now, if you're like me, the first time you crack open one of those books, the first realization you're going to have is, this stuff is way over my head. That's okay. The way you become a more clear and independent thinker is by exposing yourself to things and to ideas that are over your head, that require effort to understand and to, uh, to put into action. You might break a sweat. I know I have multiple times trying to read these books that were above my understanding. But I've noticed something. As you persist in your efforts, as your understanding grows, your ability to sort fact from fiction grows as well because you're training your thinking. Just a little something to consider. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. Okay, I've got something truly controversial to send your direction. I was going to apologize in advance, but I think I'll send it first and then maybe apologize later. So here's a question for you. What if the right speed limit is really just how fast you're willing to drive? See, did you see those knees jerk, you know, right around the room? Wow, what? What are you talking about? Eric Peters from epautos.com has uh, a very interesting take on speed limits. And it's going to make some people uncomfortable, other people maybe nodding vigorously in agreement, but I like what he says here, and, and whether you agree or not, this is a perspective worth considering if just to have a more well-rounded 
understanding of speed limits. Eric Peters says, people will never agree what the speed limit should be, which you'd think would raise questions about why there are speed limits at all. He says, it's an odd business, this top-down imposition of one-size-fits-all, when it's obvious it fits almost no one. He says, even the most ardent defender of speed limits is usually guilty of speeding. In other words, he at least occasionally drives a little faster than whatever the arbitrarily decreed fastest allowable speed is. And such people will defend their speeding as being reasonable while decrying those who speed a bit more. This being as arbitrary a standard as the speed limit itself. Now, it's funny, he includes in the, this article a link to a short video from uh, the late uh, comedian George Carlin, who explained it best in one of his rants on the subject, which it's, it's beautiful. Everyone who drives slower than you is an idiot. Everyone who drives faster is a maniac. Now, it's painfully funny, says Eric, because it touches truth, like a dentist touches a nerve with his drill. We laugh because we are at some level aware of our own idiocy. That's the art of comedy. So the question isn't what the speed limit should be, which is to say, how fast should everyone be allowed to drive? He says it ought to be, how fast should you drive? And this is the part that's going to tie some people's brains in knots, but Eric says, this size will not fit all when it comes to answering that question. How fast should you drive? Well, just as the clothes you wear don't fit all either, they fit you. You chose them for that reason. You wouldn't choose clothes that don't fit you. And if someone told you you had to wear clothes that didn't fit you, well, then you'd know you were either in boot camp or in prison. Well, he says the road shouldn't be like either one of those places. When it is like them, the result is frustrating, boring, dangerous, and unjust. Now, he says it's frustrating and it's boring to drive at a speed much lower than you can safely drive. And most people know perfectly well what that speed is already because that's how fast they do drive, no no matter the speed limit, which they obey only when necessary. Not because they feel the need to, and this is an important difference. He says, this is actually the way speed limits are supposed to be set. It's called the 85th percentile standard, and it's derived by taking note of how fast the majority of of drivers naturally drive on a given stretch of road. The posted limit is set such that the majority of drivers aren't speeding, or not by much. Now, that's an interesting admission, in that it suggests formal speed limits aren't needed, as most drivers will not drive faster than their own limits, even if there's no law forbidding it. For the same reason, he says, it's not unnecessary to, it is rather unnecessary to pass laws forbidding people to swim who cannot. Eric says most people have more respect for their safety than the law. And when there's a conflict, it's their safety that's going to carry the day. Now, of course, everyone has a different gauge as regard to what is safe when it comes to driving and otherwise. Is it safe to go for a five-mile run on a cold winter's day? Well, he says not if you're not used to such things and can do them safely. Is it safe to drive faster than whatever the sign says you may? If you can do so safely, if you know the road know your limits, and don't exceed them. Well, then he says it may well be, just as it may well be unsafe for a different person to drive the speed limit, which is above their ability to safely drive. He says what's not safe for everyone is expecting everyone to drive the same speed. 
It engenders the frustration and boredom mentioned above. And both of these things are almost certainly greater threats to safety than not minding exactly what the totem pole by the side of the road says. I think he has a really good point here. Bored drivers are inattentive drivers. Their attention wanders from the road to what's on the radio. They play with their phones. Cruise control is arguably the most dangerous safety device ever installed in a car, right after the automatic transmission. Might as well tuck a pillow behind the driver's head. Eric Peters says it's asking for trouble. For when attention is needed, as in right now, it often takes a vital moment or two for the non-attention-paying driver to refocus it, which by which time it's already often too late. Now, it's difficult to fall asleep when you're occupied, as when actually driving. You necessarily focus on what you're doing when you're driving at a speed that's not boring because it is the speed you can drive when half asleep, using your legs to steer. Driving faster is safer for you. Punishing you for it makes about as much sense as punishing someone who works out because he's in better shape than people who don't work out. Now, it's also frustrating, another dangerous thing. Arbitrary speed limits result in inconsiderate driving. Drivers who won't yield to faster-moving traffic. After all, they say, I'm doing the speed limit. The result? Increased tension generally, also tailgating and swerve passing. Neither the former nor the latter is justified any more than obstructing faster-moving traffic. But the point is that mindless reference to the speed limit is what lays down the conditions leading to both. Eric Peters says these conditions would largely dissipate if, rather than mindless obedience to speed limits, people practiced mindfulness and adjusted their driving to syncopate with the ebb and flow of traffic. But the most destructive consequence of one-size-fits-all is arguably the injustice of the thing, of punishing people with tickets and insurance premiums jacked up on the basis of such tickets for nothing more than speeding. By equating this with dangerousness, which is silly, and everyone knows it, they just disagree over the threshold at which speeding becomes dangerous, as well as unjust by any fair standard. Because it's fundamentally unjust to punish people when they haven't harmed other people. Now, Eric says whether you feel they might have and regard that as sufficient is monstrously unjust because the principle behind it opens Pandora's box to punishing people for any harm someone else feels they might cause. So he says, by now, everyone who's still thinking straight or even just thinking at all ought to be able to see the danger of that, which far exceeds the danger of me driving faster than you feel comfortable driving or the other way around. I know, and I have friends who are, you know, like highway patrolmen and so forth, that perhaps they would disagree with this. Talk to somebody, though, who drives for a living. Truckers, uh, you know, somebody who's behind the wheel a lot. Delivery people. Most of them will tell you that the speeding driver or the person who is going faster than the rest of traffic isn't necessarily the one who's, who's making things more dangerous. As one trucker put it to years ago, I was having a... Uh, an on-air argument with my co-host uh, who was, was uh, at that time very much of the soccer mommy mentality and you know well uh, those speed limits are there they're supposed to be obeyed and they're, they're protecting people from those speed demons who are out there making our lives more dangerous 
And I maintained it's not the speeder you got to worry about. It's the person who's driving slow. They're the ones forcing everybody else to adapt and adjust to, to their actions. And a trucker called in and he said, here's the thing about the speeders. They're gone. They, they, they pass you and they are gone and it's just not a big deal. But it's the slow driver, the inattentive driver, the lollygagger, the Sunday driver. That's the one you got to watch out for because they're the one who slows people down, backs up long lines of traffic, and then is oblivious to it. You don't have to agree, but there's some food for thought. Thank you for hearing me out on this one. We'll be back in just a few moments. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Quick shout out here for my friends at lifesavingfood.com. This is food storage for your peace of mind. You know, the uh, supply chain breakdowns that we have been seeing, the, the empty store shelves you're encountering, depending on where you live, it's affecting a lot of different industries. And yes, it's even hitting the uh, food storage industry as well. Now, I don't tell you this to discourage you. But just understand, this means that uh, filling some orders could take up to a month. So if you've been thinking about, um, you know, getting some extra food storage or bolstering your existing food storage program, this, this is probably a great time to act on it. There's still plentiful supplies, but accessing those supplies is becoming more difficult. So the time to, to jump is while there is still you know, there are stocks to draw from where you can still get a nice 20% discount. Click on the link that I provide in the show notes and you can learn a lot more there. But just understand the window has been closing for some time. It's still closing and it will not remain open indefinitely. Make of that what you will. So I got to give a shout out to, uh, to the Babylon Bee. And I got to acknowledge it's a sign of the times that satirical sites like the Babylon Bee in many ways are a more reliable source of truth than much of the mainstream media. Here's a good uh, case in point. Headline, Pfizer claims vaccine will reduce average daily child COVID deaths from almost zero to almost zero. The story says, in a moment celebrated by all hardworking lobbyists, Pfizer announced that the COVID-19 vaccine will reduce Average daily child COVID deaths from almost zero all the way down to almost zero. These are phenomenal results. Our internal studies have proven a microscopic benefit to an even more microscopic risk to children, stated D. Pimbley, head of Pfizer's Department of Propaganda, to a crowd of journalists who have not allowed their own children to bask in the warm glow of sunlight or interact with other children for almost no reason whatsoever. FDA officials praised Pfizer for fighting a disease that is the leading killer of children right after cancer, vehicular accidents, suicide, heart disease, drowning, suffocation, the flu, meteors from space, and slipping on a banana peel. Experts say the vaccine will probably kill more kids than it saves, but it's okay because science. When asked about any safety concerns, an FDA official replied, we're excited, we're excited to start giving it to them so we can find out. Now, here's the crazy thing that there actually is an FDA official who said exactly that. Well, we're excited to start giving it to him so we can find out. Fantastic, doctor. Your child first. 
Look, I'm not trying to make the case here that, uh, you know, you should avoid vaccines at all costs, but this push to vaccinate kids when we have no long-term understanding of, of what this vaccine will actually do. In other words, what are the likely long-term side effects? And I'll just throw one out there that I've heard people mention. I'm not saying that I know this is the case, but uh, sterility. Could it possibly harm their, their reproductive uh, organs, their ability to have children later in life? We don't know. But boy, there's sure a push, and, and I think you're going to see this become another one of those dividing points. You know, critical race theory in school? Well, these parents are terrorists for standing up to the school board and saying we don't want that. Wait till parents start saying, I don't want my child to be mandatorily vaccinated before going back to school. I think it's coming. So kudos to the Babylon Bee for for some wonderful satire, but at the same time, there's a lot of truth there. Children already are at such an entirely low, low risk of dying from COVID. Why push the vaccine? And this leads me to, to the next story that I want to share with you. What do prohibition and vaccine mandates have in common? Well, for starters, both of them are ideas that some consider to be so good, they have to be implemented by force. And there's a terrific article from Emily Burns from brownstone.org. This is from the Brownstone Institute about how vaccine mandates are the new prohibition. Now, she says not all popular policies are good policies. Prohibition from 1920 to 1933 was one of the most visible public policy failures in modern history. But believe it or not, it was wildly popular. And there are lessons here. Like vaccine mandates, prohibition was rooted in the desire to achieve a positive social end. One its opponents felt couldn't be achieved without legal coercion. It was widely supported by the science of the time. The goal of prohibition was not to reduce drinking per se. Its goal was to reduce problems deemed to be caused by drinking. So things like crime, poverty, domestic violence, etc. It was here where prohibition failed so spectacularly. It exacerbated many of the ills that it hoped to not just mitigate, but to actually cure. Now, where where prohibitionists differed from our current crop of mandators was in their consideration of unintended consequences. Prohibitionists knew that prohibition would have a huge impact on federal revenues, a large portion of which came from excise taxes on alcohol. So to address this concern, they first campaigned to pass the 16th Amendment, which allowed for a federal income tax. Now, history tells us there were many more unintended consequences they missed, but they did make some effort. The unintended consequences of vaccine mandates, which seeks to seek to exclude tens of millions of people from society, don't appear to have been considered at all. What are the costs of forcing people out of their jobs, especially at a time when we have a labor shortage? What are the... <laughs> Excuse me, what are the costs of firing doctors and nurses as we go into another COVID season? Or of firing police officers when the murder rate is increasing at the fastest rate in our history? What are the costs of excluding large swaths of the population from restaurants and other entertainment venues? 
Are those costs exacerbated when they're born disproportionately by minorities who are vaccinated at lower levels than their white counterparts in every state in the U.S., especially in Massachusetts? Emily Burns says the state of our current debate means that these questions and many more are simply not being asked. She's got some interesting charts and graphs in this story as well, so if you want to click on the link, this is well worth your time to follow. More troubling, she says, is that if enacted, these mandates are unlikely to have any impact at all on the goal they seek to achieve, which is stopping coronavirus transmission. The CDC exploited regional differences in seasonality to demonize the unvaccinated and claimed that high vaccination rates would eliminate the disease. And it was true in the summer, the South's main COVID season, in the South, the South's main COVID season, less vaccinated states like Alabama, Georgia, and Florida had higher cases than highly vaccinated states like Massachusetts. But now that our season is approaching, that has flipped. We now have a significantly higher case rate than all three of those states. She says more rigorous analysis finds that higher vaccination rates do not reduce cases. In fact, they may slightly increase them, according to a recent study of 68 countries and 3,000 counties. By the way, this is something we see in real-world data as well. Emily Burns says, here in Massachusetts, our cases are currently more than two-fold higher than the same time last year. Keep in mind, that's, that's with vaccinations. In England, infection rates are higher in vaccinated than unvaccinated groups in all age groups over 30 Testing protocols that kept that exempt rather un, that exempt vaccinated people from testing mean that both of these numbers are likely understated. Now, Emily Burns says, "Look, we can argue to the the degree to which vaccination rates reduce infection. The available data in the U.S. is atrocious, but it can no longer be claimed they will eliminate the disease. In Iceland, for example, which has more than eighty percent of its population vaccinated, cases are surging." In colleges around the country with close to 100% vaccination rates, cases are higher this year than last year. At Cornell, for example, cases are five times higher than last year at the same time. And this is despite continued indoor masking, weekly testing, and restrictions on socializing and travel. And in addition, we have, ex- we have experience with other non-sterilizing vaccines. In other words, vaccines that don't stop infection. And in no case has a disease been eradicated with such a vaccine. So, for instance, the chickenpox vaccine is a non-sterilizing vaccine. Our vaccination rate for chickenpox is more than 90%. But despite this, chickenpox still circulates widely. And for this reason, many countries, including the UK, do not vaccinate widely for chickenpox, focusing vaccines instead just on the high-risk populations. Got to come back to this article by Emily Burns from the Brownstone Institute. I'd actually recommend if you uh, have the time or interest, visit their website, sign up for their emails. Some very solid, well-researched information available to you on a very regular basis. And they've been one of the better sources to turn to in terms of good COVID information. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. I've got an excellent article here from Emily Burns uh, for the Brownstone Institute. Vaccine mandates are the new prohibition. And it's funny to, to draw the parallels between these two. I mean, look, I wasn't around for prohibition, but I think the lessons are pretty solid as far as prohibition and its stated goal of we're trying to solve the evils caused by, you know, alcohol. It didn't work. People found a way. In fact, if you look at the, the murder rate, the, the violent crime rate during the time that prohibition was in force, it spiked. Why would that be? And it would dropped after prohibition was repealed. How could that be? And the answer is, well, prohibition artificially made it more difficult for people to get their hands on alcohol. The demand was still there. There was still a market for intoxicating spirits. And with a legally accessible way to get your hands on, you know, your beer, your wine, your liquor, organized crime stepped up. Why not? That artificial scarcity means that prices would artificially rise as well. And so the gangsters fought over whose territory, you know, this would be for supplying that liquor to the crowds that wanted it. I mean, it's, it's the same reason that drug dealers kill each other over who gets to sell crack out there on the street corner. Prohibition went away and, uh, gee, I don't know. You know, the alcohol still does damage. It still, you know, causes physical harm. It can cause societal harm. But you don't see beer truck drivers shooting it out over which store gets to carry their particular brand of beer. There's a pretty good lesson in that. It puts the responsibility back on the people to decide what they will do, what they will consume, what their behavior will be. And for the record, I think people should be held strictly accountable for their behavior. Someone gets drunk and disorderly, they ought to be held accountable for it. They get drunk and cause harm behind the wheel, absolutely, they should be held accountable for it. Prohibition just sought to prevent it, to put in a preventive law that would keep that from happening by making it illegal for them to access something, even if they were to use it responsibly. So let's bring it back to uh, Emily's comments on the vaccine mandate. She says a mandate this draconian can surely only be considered where there is unequivocal public benefit. In other words, if you're going to force people to take the vaccine, you better be able to show the public benefit. But that bar has not been met here. In fact, she says not even close. In an evolution typical of our new upside down world, vaccinated people who are protected from who are protected from COVID-19 by virtue of their vaccines are now being told they need to be protected from unvaccinated people. Now that there's copious data available to refute this statement is unimportant because the goal here isn't to provide useful public health advice. The goal is to stoke fear and resentment until it reaches a pitch of righteous indignation. And again, here's an interesting parallel. This was tried during Prohibition. And it helped to fuel the rise of the KKK. Given the lower vaccination rates in black and Hispanic communities, one might think that this would raise a red flag or two. Emily Burns says occasionally we hear that even if vaccination doesn't reduce cases, we still need to force people to be vaccinated to avoid hospitals from being overwhelmed. This is another red herring. 
Our hospitals were not even close to being overwhelmed during last year's winter wave without a vaccine. During our winter peak, COVID patients occupied fewer than 13% of all beds. And staffed beds were reduced by 11%. Not exactly an action you would take if you were feeling overwhelmed. Our ICUs were so overwhelmed, they felt the need to reduce staffed beds by 30%. Now, Emily Burns says, we'll likely have a significant winter COVID surge. That should be the lesson of the summer. That even with high levels of vaccinations among vulnerable populations, cases, hospitalizations, and deaths can still surge. In fact, we're already seeing this in Europe. She says, we should be preparing for this not pretending it won't happen due to our state's high vaccination levels. For instance, she says in Massachusetts, we currently have 50% more COVID patients hospitalized than the same time last year, and the deaths are roughly equal. In hospitals, in order to reduce non or nosocomial in-hospital infections, we should be trying to identify those people who contracted COVID-19 and have natural immunity. These people are significantly less likely to become infected. We're talking 6 to 13 times less likely, and hence less likely to to transmit COVID-19 to vulnerable patients than a vaccinated person, person rather, who was never infected. But instead, we're firing these people if they've chosen not to get vaccinated, as well as as, uh, these scores, despite scores of studies showing that... uh, uh, vaccination of previously infected people provides no additional protection and puts recipients at higher risk for adverse events. Emily Burns says to the extent that there are at-risk people who are not vaccinated, we should attempt to convince those people to get vaccinated. But mandates and coercion are not the way. The sad truth is that our public health officials have so damaged their credibility with their constant stream of noble lies that doing this will be very, very hard. But she says, here's what could work, and for whom. Before we go about trying to convince unvaccinated people to get vaccinated, we first need to understand their reasons for not getting vaccinated. And she says, as best as I can tell, these are the main reasons people choose not to get vaccinated and and the likelihood of persuading them. So, The reason being like somebody says, uh, well, my reason is I already got COVID. If they're young and healthy, they don't need persuading. If they're old or comorbid, they don't need persuading. There's those who don't perceive COVID as a threat. They could be persuaded. No long-term safety data cannot be persuaded if you're young and healthy, but uh, could be persuaded if you're old and have comorbidities. Concern about adverse events. Young and healthy could be persuaded, as could old and those with more more uh, comorbidities. Religious objections. Interestingly, interestingly, on both of these, unlikely to persuade for young and healthy and old and comorbid as well. Distrust of government and public health. People young and healthy could be persuaded, as could those who are old and comorbid. Believe masks provide equivalent protection. Some people could be persuaded, as whether they're young and healthy, as could those who are old or comorbid. Now, here's her point. Naturally acquired immunity appears to be more, both more durable and effective, especially at reducing infection. So it hardly seems necessary to focus our efforts on persuading these people to get vaccinated. She says, earlier I noted that black and Hispanic people are less likely to have been vaccinated. 
And it's also worth noting that they've been infected at far higher rates and thus have far higher rates of natural immunity, 30 to 50 percent higher than whites and more than twice the rate of Asians. She also says, nor should we be focusing our efforts on the young and healthy. The FDA estimated the risk of COVID-associated death for a healthy 30-year-old to be, you ready for this, 0.0004%, 1 in 250,000, substantially less than their risk from flu, car accidents, suicide, drug overdose, and a whole host of other things. So given this, her recommendation is we should narrowly tailor our efforts to reach those groups who are at risk but remain unvaccinated. And here are five actions she says could help. Number one, remove the threat of mandates. There's a small group of people at risk and whose principal reason for not getting getting vaccinated is because they do not want to capitulate to the coercion now being applied. In other words, they're refusing on principle. She says some of these people, I believe, would benefit from being vaccinated. But removing the threat mandates, we remove this objection for these people. Secondly, the CDC acknowledging and apologizing for repeated lies, overstatements, failures, politicization, and general incompetence. More than any one thing, that would help to restore trust. Because there's a group of people who won't do anything the CDC recommends until the CDC comes clean and acknowledges its many errors. Number three, providing comorbidity-based relative risk. Whether from laziness or incompetence, she says, the CDC has not provided age and comorbidity-based risk stratification for COVID. Number four, drop the whole my vaccine protects you rhetoric. And finally, number five, she says, be honest about masks. Persuasion is such a different tool than coercion. Even when it comes to normal childhood vaccinations, She says there's very little difference in vaccination rates in states without exemptions and states that have soft mandates that allow for religious and philosophical exemptions. So it's time for us to stand with family, friends and neighbors, not with politicians and bureaucrats who are trying to blame them for their own failures. We need to return to a society based on trust, transparency and accountability rather than this new model of coercion, censorship and scapegoating. What a great article. This is The Brian Hyde Show.